Welcome to Stand Forever, a podcast based on the truth that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Stand Forever originated from the First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. Our teacher is Ken Parker, the church's senior pastor. We all deal with grief at different times in our lives. Whether we've lost a loved one, experienced a challenging family situation, or some other difficult circumstance, grief affects us all. So what does the Bible say about handling grief? Join Pastor Ken as he sets out to answer that question in his series, Climbing a Mountain Called Grief. Now for today's teaching, here's Ken. I want to give you, at least in part, my rationale for what we're going to be doing preaching-wise the next several weeks in worship, and I'll be brief. Back in the spring of 20, uh, 2004, my mother died. It's hard for me to believe that it's been almost 20 years ago. I won't rehearse all of the roller coaster experiences with you this morning, but suffice it to say, my mother's death and subsequently my chosen way of coping with it led me on a quest to understand more about grief. When something as significant as a loved one's death occurs, people attempt to cope with it in a lot of different ways. Some compartmentalize their grief. Some turn to alcohol or drugs, attempting to lessen the sting. Some people give in to various behaviors they thought they had long since departed from their behavioral repertoire. Some people forsake their moral moorings. Some people throw themselves into their work. In no way am I advocating for any of these things. I'm simply stating the fact. Mentioning them is not the same thing as excusing them. But I have a four-decade file in my mind filled with stories that would demonstrate what I've told you is accurate. When my mother died, I was pastoring a church that we had planted just a couple of years earlier. We'll probably talk more about that later. But my options then, as a believer in Christ, as a pastor of a church, were limited in terms of my response. I certainly did not want to in any way betray my personal convictions. I never contemplated meeting my mother's death with any kind of sinful behavior that wasn't on the table. But I knew that if healing were to come for me, I would have to pursue something that would be healthy for me. So I have always had a good work ethic, and I'm sure that in those moments I threw myself into my work. But more than that, mostly I decided to go on a quest to find helpful information about grief from a Christian perspective. I have a long list of books and periodicals related to grief that I read, something that I was using, attempting to soothe my pain. I continued my devotional life, spent time with the Lord just as I had done previously. I didn't blame God for anything. My mother had lived a good, long, full life, and she was loved by us, and we were loved by her. It was as good as it could be in that regard. But here's what I found. For all of our talk as Christians about handling grief with a godly perspective, we were woefully lacking in solid, helpful, theologically sound resources. Now, we know that grief doesn't lend itself to a one-size-fits-all solution. So in my reading, I found three resources that were especially helpful. One of them I had read years earlier. Another one I picked up and found it to be great. These two were written by Christians. They were great resources. But the third resource that, in fact, I found to be the most helpful was not written by a Christian. In fact, the lady who wrote it was, to my knowledge, had, was not a believer, had no 
no personal relationship with Christ, no religious affiliation at all. I won't recommend the book because although it had an awful lot of helpful information, it also had some really weird material too. But that's, that's when I knew this day would come. I felt like I would need to deal at length with grief sometime because I had found a dearth of good material in my own personal hour of need. So that's the impetus behind what we're doing. I felt like and still feel like the people of God, and I'm responsible before the Lord for equipping you. I feel like the people of God need some good tools to help us and others through grief. We've all been through it. Many of you are going through it even now. And it feels at times like a mountain we'll never be able to scale. Thus, the title of the series, Climbing a Mountain Called Grief. This is part one, Grieving Sin. And we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, page two in the Pew Bibles there in front of you. And we're going to begin reading it, chapter three and verse one. I'll invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Thank you so much. You may be seated. One of the things that we're going to be doing throughout this series, I'll be sharing stories from various sources, most of which will remain anonymous, stories of grief that people have sent me, some in our church, some in fact complete strangers. I'll change the names, but keep the story basically the same so we can work on processing grief together. Now, this may seem like a really odd place to start this series, Genesis the book of beginnings. But in many ways, that which occurs in the account that we just read is the scenario to which we can all continually trace our grief. It all goes back to this. This particular concept, grieving sin, won't be finished this week, but I do want to give you a bit of a spoiler alert related to the next couple of weeks. It's actually more of a spoiler reminder because most of you already know this. Don't just pause and get stuck in this moment of sin. Remember, God provides. God provides a way to experience forgiveness. God provides a way to experience eternal life. The Apostle Paul, remember, in speaking of the death of those that we love, he said, we as believers grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. And so it is even with sin. We ought to grieve over sin, the sin in the world as well as our personal sin, but as believers, we do not grieve as those without hope. So grieving sin, let's talk about it for just a few moments. First of all, temptation to sin can come from many places. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I've never heard or seen a talking serpent. The word serpent means snake. If I had experienced a talking snake, someone else would be preaching here today because I would have died in that moment. 
But the serpent enters the picture with no detailed explanation. We can only conjecture about its origin, but we know that the serpent is eventually understood to be God's enemy. As the narrative moves ahead, we certainly understand this to be more than just a snake. We see the snake as being used by an evil power, which we believe ultimately to be Satan himself. We don't know exactly the timing of when evil entered God's good world, but it clearly came into the created world at some point. The point is, we don't know about Eve's previous engagement with the serpent. There's certainly no indication that she had any kind of fear related to the serpent or the encounter for that matter. We do know that the serpent contradicts what God has said and then indicates that there would be some sort of personal gain by going against God and eating the fruit of the tree. Lest I get ahead of myself, suffice it to say, to the point temptations to sin can come from almost anywhere. In this instance, it's a conversation that leads to sin. That's not the last time that's happened, by the way. And just as the serpent entices Eve to sin, there are countless conversations that will occur all around us this next week that will entice either us or others to sin. Please, for your sake, And for those that you love, don't be naive enough to think you cannot give in to temptation. You can. In fact, as I have said so often, I could never is often followed by I can't believe I. The invitation to sin may come from some expected sources, but often it comes from places we wouldn't expect. To the point, guard your heart. Be on guard Temptation to sin comes from many places. Secondly, I want you to recognize not only temptation to sin comes from many places, but acquiescing to sin leads us to worse places. Verse 2 and following. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Acquiescing to sin leads us to worse places. Now granted, we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. When we read it, it's kind of like watching one of those scary movies, you know, when the main character is about to walk into a really dark house and the bad guy is waiting just around the door and we want to say, don't do it! When we read this story of Adam and Eve, knowing what we know, we look at that and we want to say, don't do it, don't don't go there. So what happened? The serpent says, did God actually say? I think it's safe to say there's a sense of unbelieving accusation in his voice. And here's what I want you to get at this point. That's when Eve should have run. At the very first indication that the serpent was questioning God, Eve should have run. Anytime somebody begins attempting to get you to question God, second-guess God, or disobey God, listen, run. Why? Because here's what happens. Every single time we give in, every time we acquiesce to sin, it leads to worse places. Can I get a witness? Let me ask you this way. Has anybody here, anybody 
here ever had occasion for things to turn out really well when we've given ourselves over to the influence of someone or something that's in opposition to God? Of course not. Even if you think you can give in just a little bit, give whatever it is, just a little space in your life, I'm telling you, it won't go well. And the serpent goes on a PR campaign against God, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die? Again, this is where I want to tell Eve and then Adam, run. The enemy is at work in this very moment with the first couple. What's he doing? He is seeking to get them to doubt the word of God. I'm glad that's the last time that's ever happened, right? God has said, as recorded in Genesis 2, verses 16 and following, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God said that if you eat of this particular tree, never mind all the other trees that are in the garden, all the fruit that I've given you, this one, if you eat it, you'll die. You can have everything except this one thing, and if you have this one thing, you'll lose the best thing. And what did they do? They gave in. They acquiesced to the accusation against God by the enemy of God. Every time, listen, every time we acquiesce to sin, it leads to worse places. Adam and Eve end up giving in to the accusation, the lie of the enemy. They think they're in a bad spot because they become convinced that God is withholding something from them, and it leads to a worse place, right? They go from not being able to eat the fruit of one particular tree to not even being able to stay in the garden itself. This is where I'm going to mention that we should grieve sin. I don't know all that Adam and Eve were thinking in that moment. What what did the serpent look like? We don't know. We don't think Eve was afraid. And that, by the way, is often the way of sinful influences in our life. We're not afraid. We're not afraid of sin. These influences look innocent enough, right? Surely this won't really hurt me, right? My friends are doing this, right? My parents, they just don't understand. They're from a different generation. The Bible was written so long ago, that sin can't be a sin still, right? I mean, we know better. We don't know all that Adam and Eve had witnessed, but we know Eve eats the forbidden fruit. No indication, by the way, that it's an apple. And she gives some to her husband who was with her, verse 6. And what happens? The eyes of both of them are opened. They know they're naked and they want to cover themselves. For the first time in their lives, Adam and Eve are ashamed. They're ashamed. This is so very sad. It wasn't meant to be this way. Their nakedness, both figuratively and literally, was a beautiful thing and in no way a cause for distress prior to their acquiescing to sin. But acquiescing to sin caused Adam and Eve to experience shame. And you know what? The same thing has been true down through the ages 
all the way to this very moment. We ought to grieve sin. You've been listening to Stand Forever with Ken Parker. Thank you for taking the time to join us. If you'd like to correspond with us, feel free to email from the contact information found on our church website, www.carneyfbc.com, or write to us at Stand Forever, 303 South Grove Street, Kearney, Missouri, 64060.